There's a call in our heart for significance, to make a difference, to be people who are in the process of impacting their culture. In 2004, there was a song that became the number one song in America, country music song entitled Live Like You Were Dying, about a 40-year-old that finds out that uh, his life may be in the balance, and the words go like this, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, you got it. And I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. In the 70s, those of you who want to take a walk down the thrilling days of a long time ago, in the 70s, there was a beer, the beer that made Milwaukee famous, which is what beer? Schlitz. Yeah, nobody got it in the last hour either. I can hear it. Yeah. Anyway, but, but they had a little slogan that became very famous. It said, you only go around once in life, so you've got to grab for all the gusto you can. It's a, it's a call for significance. It's a call for meaning. And then in 1988, there was a very famous logo that was embraced by a sporting apparel company. It was a swoosh. And they still have that same slogan, which is what? Just do it. I mean, again, it's a call for significance. And that call is an echo of what the Bible says. The Bible says in James chapter 4 that life is a vapor. You breathe it out, it's so quick, it's gone. So in other words, life is short, eternity is long, so live like that is true, because it is true. Or in Psalm 90, the psalmist is talking about the brevity of life. And verse 10 says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or, and, and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then this verse, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. In other words, a call for significance. And, and, and the first question of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith is probably the most famous and maybe the best catechism question ever propounded, and that is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God or to honor God or to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him means I have significance or I have usefulness. So we're called to usefulness. We're called to be disciples of Christ. And I said last week that the definition of a disciple is a lifelong learner under the reality of Christ, is being apprenticed under the Lordship of Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by the feet of man. You're the light of the world. A, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so, so the question is, is how do we retain our saltiness? How do we retain our saltiness? How's our, our light shine? And I want to suggest this morning that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We retain our saltiness as we are continually equipped as disciples of Jesus, lifelong learners. To equip means to supply with necessary items for a particular calling or journey. Equipping. We have a purpose statement as a church, and it goes like this. Equipping disciples to pursue Christ passionately so that they will impact their culture. So equipping to pursue Christ passionately to impact their culture. So we're lifelong learners, and we are also people who are leaky buckets. I need the re-energizing of the Holy Spirit. I need the Word of God in my life on a day-to-day basis. I need to grow in Christ because I am a leaky bucket. And that's just the way it is. So in 2 Timothy, Paul is talking to Timothy about being a lifelong learner. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God given to you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and discipline. He says, I want you to fan into a white hot flame the gift of God that is in you. And the question is, how do we fan it into a flame? How, do we, how are we people that are on go for the Lord? How are we people that, that have energy and resolve and, and we stretch ourselves out? And my answer in part is this. I am a person who is continuously being equipped in the body of Christ as a lifelong learner as I apprentice myself under the Lordship of Christ and the Word of God. That, that, that's, that's the way to do it. I need to be continuously equipped. And as I do that... I am fighting for my joy and my usefulness. And it's a fight. In fact, later in this chapter, we'll see this next week. Paul says, Timothy, by doing these things, you will wage the good warfare. It's a, it's a call to arms. He says, you, you are fighting for your joy and your usefulness as you walk in the way of Christ. So we need to be people who are equipped. We saw last week in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy Paul says, I'm going to go up to the north, Timothy. I'm leaving you in this cosmopolitan, economic, growing area called Ephesus. And he says, verse 3, I I charge you to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God which is my faith. He says, I charge you, I command you, you stay by the stuff, Timothy. And then he says, Timothy, as you charge them, remind them that the the goal of our command, the goal of Scripture, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. So that's what you're to be about. Now, my thesis this morning is this. As we continue our study of 1 Timothy, if true equipping is to take place in my life, I must be a person who continuously lives out the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 calls it the glorious gospel. 
The scripture says, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed or happy God with which I have been entrusted. If I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to live out and understand and embrace the glorious gospel. So three points. Number one is this. I am to live, be grounded and saturated in the gospel of grace. The the gospel church is not merely a, a place where you go from unbelief to belief, which it is. But the gospel is the environment in which I live. It's not just a starting point and then we just get after it. It is, it is the starting point where we go from unbelief to belief in the work of Christ on the cross for our sins, but we live in that environment. Look at verses 14 to 16, chapter 1. Paul says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the Faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Just stop for a second. That word overflowed, that's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. And it means a super overabundance and glorious excess. It says the, the, the grace of God, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here's the saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Foremost. I'm the biggest sinner out there, he says. And he says it again, verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are believers in him for eternal life. The I am the foremost. This grace overflowed into me, the foremost of sinners. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You say, well, how how, has that happened, Paul? I mean, Christ has blessed blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? Keep on reading. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Help, how am I holy and blameless before him? How has he chosen me before the foundation of the world? How? Keep on reading. He, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You say, well, how have I been adopted, a rebel adopted into the family of God? How has that happened? But he answers it. Keep on reading the Bible. Your questions are answered. Listen. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. You say, well, you've been given every blessing in the, in the heavenlies. You've been loved with an everlasting love. You've been adopted because in Christ we have redemption through his blood. Then the fullness of time, God became a man and fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrificial promises by dying on the cross for our sin. That's it. So that's our point of praise, proclamation, 
and rejoicing. The same is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says this, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. For, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for our sin. See, there's one mediator between holy God and sinful man, and that is the man Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And see, what I'm saying, if, if I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to be grounded in the greatness of the gospel. Every day, every day, behold the glory of the cross. And it has incredible ramifications. Example, in Ephesians 4, Paul goes through a long list of ethical realities for the Christian. Then he comes to verse 32, and he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. He grounds it in the glory of the cross. Or in Ephesians 5, he's talking about husbands and how they're to love their wives. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Jesus Christ loved the church. Wow. So, so I live in the gospel of grace. And he says, twice, I am the foremost of sinners. And there's no despair there or disdain. There's a sense of the glory and goodness of God. He says, I'm the foremost of sinners, and this happened in my life, that I might display the perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, there's no despair because, because my life, Paul says, is a pattern of the perfect patience of the living God for men and women like us. You see, Paul says, let me remind you of who I was. He says, I was an uptight, arrogant, self-centered, egocentric Pharisee at one time. I mean, when Paul talks about himself, he says, you know, when it came to me the Pharisee, I was without fault, which means you don't want a vacation with a Pharisee. Just not any fun. Paul was someone who breathed out murderous threats against the church. He went around persecuting believers. We believe in Acts chapter 7 that Paul was standing there when Stephen was stoned to death, the first martyr in the church, and he gave hearty approval to the death of Stephen. He was a bad, malicious, arrogant dude, but God saved him. And Paul says, I'm example, I'm just an example of God's perfect patience. If his friend Peter had been there, Peter, Peter says to the Lord, he says, he says, Lord, all of these guys may desert you, but not me. I am going to go with you till the very end. I am riding shotgun with you. And arrogant. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so he says, never, Lord. And, and he, he did. He did. The last time he denied the Lord, there was a little servant girl. I mean, a servant girl, for heaven's sake. Not a big Roman soldier with weaponry. A little servant girl said, weren't you with him? He says, no, I never knew him. And he started cursing. He started cursing Christ. That's Peter. Example. Peter. See, so there's no despair here because this is just a glorious pattern of the perfect patience of God. There's no despair here because God's grace is greater 
than our sin. Let me tell you something. I talk to people frequently and invite them to church or, or I meet people that used to go to church and don't go anymore and they're going through a hard time. And I hear that people say things like this, and this is just silly. I, I, I need to get my act together and then I'll come back to church or I'll, I'll go to church. I said, you don't get it. This is a meeting time for dysfunctional people. You know, especially this section over here. You know? I mean, th this is, we are all messed up. That's why we're here. That's why we sing about the gospel, because we all are rebels and we deserve hell. You don't get cleaned up and come. You come and God cleans you up and works in your heart. And, and, and so it's, it's very frustrating to me. It's frustrating to me that sometimes people say, well, you know, it's just, I feel like I've got to be more with it. I said, no. In, in fact, we are people who are just, we all struggle. This is a quote by Luther. Martin Luther, you know, the guy that started the Reformation, German guy. Okay. He says, the gospel is not health but healing. It's not being but becoming. It's not rest but ex exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are gr uh, growing toward it. This process is, and yet it's not finished, but it's ongoing. This is not the end, but it is the road. Well said. We have a ministry here called the Stephen Ministry. And Stephen, we have some people trained in Stephen's ministry, and they walk with people going through very difficult times of grief or personal failure, and they just befriend them, and they're there for them, and they pray with them, and they, they care about them. And, and the pattern for any ministry like that, or any ministry, any ministry in the church at all, should be Galatians 6, where the Scripture says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, Anything, anything. You who are spiritual, go and restore them and do it very gently. Just be gentle with people. Do it very gently and keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. <laughs> In other words, you don't go as a guy that's got it together. You go as somebody that's broken just like the person you're going to. So uh, it's the gospel of grace. For example, uh, just to, as an exercise today, and we've got people in the worship center who are watching, and they're going to tell us what the results there. If anybody here is omnicompetent in every area, please stand up. That's why I'm sitting down. I don't want to be, I don't want you guys to think, okay, anybody here omnicompetent? Anybody married to somebody that's omnicompetent? <laughs> how, how about this? Speaking of marriage, anybody here uh, that has a perfect marriage, please stand up. No takers? Okay. How about any perfect parents? How about any perfect jerks? I'm just kidding. Um, uh, uh, any, any perfect sons or daughters? I mean, this, we're broken people. By your own admission, you're broken. You just admitted you're broken. Um, and that, that's why we need the gospel 
of grace. Now, understand this. At least I'd be accused of being antinomian. Look it up. Um, Good works are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. I know that. Uh, New City Catechism, question 34, asks this question, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? Answer, yes, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. So good works are very important. Uh, one of the old confessions, faith says, why do we do good works? And they say this, to show our thankfulness to God, to make ourselves understand that we are assured of our salvation, to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, to adorn the gospel, which means we show the beauty of Jesus by the way we live, and fifthly, to sh- Shut the mouths of adversaries who speak ill of the gospel of grace. That's wonderful. That's glorious. And it's true. But hear this. Big word. But. If you base your acceptance and your adoption on anything but the work of Jesus on the cross as your substitute, you are missing the gospel by a country mile. It's all about the cross of Christ. God made him, 2 Corinthians says, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. When God looks at me, he looks at me not based upon my performance, my obedience, the way I love my wife, my kids, the way I care for you guys. He he looks at me based upon the reality of who Jesus is for me. That's the gospel. And that's why we can sing and be happy and dance and celebrate and be very, very glad. But if we're not careful, this quasi-works can creep into our thinking. You've got to be careful. I know the Bible says that if I, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayers. Psalm 66, verse 18. I know that in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 7 says that if I don't live my wife in the way of understanding and treat her with high regard as the physically weaker partner and a co-heir of the grace of God, that my prayers will be hindered. I know that, but that has nothing to do with my standing in Christ. It means I'm a rotten husband who needs to repent. But I am complete in Christ forever. So I'm teaching a course on Wednesday night called uh, The Seeking God Lifestyle. It's good material, but, but they're talking about the importance of reading the Bible and immersing yourself in prayer and immersing yourself in good Christian community and, and fasting and, and, and doing these things. I think this is good material. That's why I'm teaching it. But this week I came across a sentence and I just went, hold the phone. Whoa. I'm going to show it to you. And this is just wrong. Okay, so before you read it and go, yeah, amen, it's wrong. So don't say amen. Say they said this. Long-term obedience and faithfulness to God increases your standing with him. No. No. My standing in Christ was complete when God saved me. You get it? Now, I grow in my faith, and I adorn the gospel, and I'm useful and joyful under his hand as I walk in obedience. Absolutely. But, but, but my long-term obedience and faithfulness does not improve my standing. When you are in Christ and you're in union with him, your standing cannot improve. 
It's done. That's why we should be happy. I mean, really, that's why we should say, wow. God doesn't look at me based upon my performance or the way I do A, B, or C. He looks at me and he loves me based upon who Christ is in me. And that gives me freedom, and it gives me joy, and it gives me hope. I love some of these hymns. I just, I love hymns that have great content. There's a hymn we sing frequently called Before the Throne of God Above. Listen to one stanza. When Satan tempts me to despair, and he does. Satan's accused of the brothers and sisters. And tells me of the guilt within. And there's guilt. I sin. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul has been set free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, he looks at me through the work of Jesus. If he looks at me through the, my performance, I am despairing. But it's through Jesus. That's the gospel. A rock of ages by a guy named Augustus Toplady, who died at the age of 38. And he wrote like 180 hymns, only 38. But not, it says, It's not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Toplady said, If I could be burning up for Christ, or weeping all day long, they don't wash away my sins. It's only the blood of Jesus that washes away my sins. So, joy and hope and point two. The gospel and the understanding of the gospel produces a life of thanksgiving and praise. We would call it a doxological life. Look at verse 17. Paul just talked about the greatness of the gospel and how he is the foremost of sinners, and yet God has forgiven him, and he has the hope of heaven, and his sins are wiped away, and he belongs to the Lord. And he says this, now to the king, he just breaks out into praise, now to the king of all the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Now to the king, the king, the ruler, the sovereign, the omnipotent one. To, to the king who is immortal or unchanging, invisible. The invisible God has become visible in the person of Christ. Like John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of, as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So, 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 so to the king of kings, the one who is immortal and invisible, the only God. He's the only God. Be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. See, I think getting the gospel right opens the floodgates to thanksgiving and to praise and to celebration and to joy, to laughter. Number three, the equipping process is a community project. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And this is what I think that verse means. Because it says later in 
chapter 4, he says, Timothy, remember, verse 14, do, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. So the, the, the Lord, uh, the people feel led to set apart Timothy for the ministry. And so we do this here. We set apart people for elders and deacons and special ministries. And the leaders of the church come forward and they will place their hands upon them and pray. But this is, here's what I think happened in Timothy's case. The elders would come forward and they'd put their hands on him or embrace him. And they'd, they'd quote God's promises over him. They might quote uh, Psalm 84. Timothy, better one day in the, in the Lord's house as a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God will be your son and he will be your shield, Timothy. So you walk in him. Or they may have said, Psalm 23, 6, Timothy, you walk with God and you serve him and surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is faithful, Timothy. Or Psalm 46, Timothy, God is your refuge and your strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Or Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. But we did, they spoke these promises over him and they embraced him. And, and they signified they were passing on energy and power from them to him. It's just a beautiful word picture. So, so I think what happens here is that, that Timothy, Paul said, Timothy, remember that you're part of a glorious community that's representing the reality of Christ. And, and really, this equipping process is a community project. It is all about people who are, have received a legacy. We've received a legacy. I mean, I don't know about you, but as an American, when I, when I just click on a computer or whatever on December the 7th, and I see the USS Arizona listing in Pearl Harbor, and about to go down with the lives of hundreds of men dying. It makes me proud to be an American. When I see, when I see the towers before they crumbled on 9-11, it makes me think about the people that sacrificed. I mean, it, these, these things stir me. But I tell you what really stirs me as well is when I look at church history. I love church history. I've, I've got certain dates on my calendar. You know, these computers, they come up and boom, boom, boom. So this past... August the 24th, two things uh, came up. John Owen died in 1683, I think it was, on August 24th. John Owen was my favorite Puritan. I named my son after John Owen, Zachary Owen Brown. John Owen had 18 children, 17 children. All died before they were the, the age of 20 except for one. And he was faithful unto the Lord. But also on August 24th, this reminder that in 15 and 72, there was something called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France. And in 1572, the, the, the church in France was growing. The gospel church was flourishing. They were the heirs of John Knox and John Calvin, and they were just going for it. And they, were, they, were, they had churches in almost every community. And, and, and the churches upset the power grid because they didn't kowtow to the state and state religion. They said, no, we're, see, Christians are, are dangerous people because we say, ultimately, we are not under any administration or any party. We belong to King Jesus. And King Jesus tells us to be good citizens as long as you don't go too far. But we belong to King Jesus. And so it's hard to control Christians who really read the Bible. 
And so they realized that, and so there was a secret plot, plot probably developed by a, a wicked woman named Catherine de' Medici, who was the queen mother, that on uh, bells were told on the morning of August 24th, and tr soldiers entered the homes of these evangelicals, and they murdered them in their beds. They went to school where evangelical children were, and they murdered children in the school. They killed eight to 11,000 believers in France on August 24th, 25th, and 26th. The church had to scatter. The Huguenots went abroad, and the church has never recovered in the nation of France. But when I look at 8 to, to 11,000 people murdered for simply believing in Jesus, and I think, God, don't let me blow it. Or I think about, recently I was reading about a physician named Pavel Crever. Dr. Crever was raised in the Czech Republic, and he was a man who followed a guy named John Hoos. And John Hoos was burned at the stake in 14 and 15 because he preached the gospel in the Czech Republic. So Dr. Crever went to Scotland where he was a, became a well-known physician and was the physician of the royal family. But he preached the gospel and they said, you've got to stop. You've got to stop before Scotland embraced the gospel. And Dr. Crever said, I, I can't stop. And so they arrested him and said, you've got to stop. He said, I can't stop. And so they sentenced him to be burned alive at the stake. And we believe that when, he, when they took him to the stake, they put an iron ball and they forced it in his mouth. Then they put a cloth around his face to keep him from preaching the gospel as he was burned alive. And I think, God, don't, don't let me blow it because I've received an incredible legacy of faith. Legacy of faith, or just a personal reference. I was thinking about this the other day when I was in seminary. I was a college pastor at a small church in Denton, Texas. And uh, there was a man there named Otis Stiff. And Otis was married to Wilma, and they were old. And he was a volunteer janitor at our church. I never saw him out of bib overalls. He was raised in the panhandle of Texas, which was tough, tough living. And he retired to beautiful, balmy Dallas, Texas. And, but Otis Stiff was a wonderful man who loved the Lord. And he always was kidding with me. And, and uh, on the night I asked my wife to marry me, we went to the church and I tried to do something nice, which didn't turn out really that good, but she still married me. And um, so we, we were leaving the auditorium and we we're going out of the church and Otis Stiff on a Saturday night was cleaning up. And he was the first person we told, we're going to get married. Just a sweet guy. He was at my ordination council with a few deacons. He sat in the front row and didn't ask a question, probably didn't have his teeth in that day. He didn't ask the question, just kept looking at me and winking like that. You're doing good. You're doing good. And I thought, Lord, I've received a legacy from Otis and Wilma Stiff. Don't let me blow it. Don't let me blow it. So, so brothers and sisters, we have received this incredible legacy of faith. That's what he's saying. He's also saying this. He says, but there's also a generational transfer. There's a generational transfer. Timothy, you're not only living it that you've received, but you're passing it on. You're charging certain people. So I need to realize I've received a legacy, and I am, I'm passing it on. And I've, I've told people, tell people all the time, when we get together and pray, it's fine to talk about A, B, and C, but, but part of what we talk about should always be how are we impacting the next generation? How are we living in such a fashion that this generation is being nurtured in the grace and the knowledge of the triune God and the gospel that is glorious under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How are we living it out? Whether it's through our, our, our school, Primary Christian Academy, whether it's through our youth ministry, campus outreach, whatever we're doing, 
How are we living it out? How are we having this transfer? We should always ask ourselves, what am I doing to intentionally build in the next generation? One of the greatest lies from the pit of hell that Satan whispers in your ear is you don't count. You're, you're not you're not holy enough, or you're not smart enough, or you're not, you're too old, or you're too young. It's, it's all a lie. You count. And so the question is, how am I passing it on? How am I praying? How am I praying strategically? How am I loving? Or am I just consumed with things? So I read this, and I go, there, there's a legacy I'm receiving, and there is a generational transfer that's going on in my life right now, right now. And may God give us the ability to live that way. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we can rejoice in our hearts and say we have one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is God and he's glorious and he's good and he died on the cross for my sins, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I thank you that you look at your church, your bride, your people, not through our performance, but through the cross. And I thank you that because of that, we can have a doxological thanksgiving and praise and joy that flows into our hearts. So, Lord, we bless you this day and we thank you. And we, we pray, Lord, and, and we thank you. We could, all of us who are believers could write down without even straining our minds the names of 10, 20, 30 people who built into us and who loved us and who taught us and who cared for us and who you know, put up with wild and crazy junior high or senior high kids or listened to us. And, and, and God, we've received a legacy of faith from the people that God went before us, much less from centuries ago, men and women who simply were killed because they preached the gospel of grace. It's hard for us to believe that. But we received that legacy. And Lord, we are involved in the transfer of that legacy to the coming generations. So may we be equipped. May we live in such a way that we show forth our thankfulness that we build our assurance, that we, that we edify or encourage brothers and sisters, that we make the gospel beautiful because we live lives that are pleasing to you, and that we, we stop the mouths of people who just say Christians are losers. Let us be servants and let us care and let us listen and, and let us walk the path of humility. So bless us, I pray, O oh Lord. Prosper the gospel ministry among us in Jesus' name.